0: This is Sarah Godding, And this is Russell Clone. Welcome to Church of the City Teaching Podcast. My name is Jake. I'm so glad that you're here. I am a pastoral resident here at Church of the City. And uh, yeah, that means that I get to spend time learning from Russell and Sarah and our leaders what it looks like to be a pastor and to be a part of a church family like this. But I think that most of all, I have learned from you, from everyone who is a part of this community. And so on behalf of everyone here, I just want to say welcome. Um, I don't know what brought you here or why you came this morning, but I am so glad that you are here. And you know, I I was spending a little bit of time this week thinking about coming here actually, um, because last week, last Sunday, I was on the serve the the team that sets up and tears down this room so that we can have our gathering. And uh, I don't know if you are a morning person or a night person. Um, I like to just call people who are morning people crazy uh, because I don't understand anyone who is like that. So last week I knew that I needed to be here by about eight o'clock and so I foolishly made a plan that I was going to wake up, I was going to take a shower, I was going to get dressed, I was going to go buy good coffee just around the corner, have some nice time just to relax before I came and uh, began to set up. And again, I said that was a pretty foolish thought because, of course, I rolled out of bed at the last possible second, I put on a hat, and I was running out the door. But I needed a cup of coffee, and so I, uh, I went through the McDonald's drive through And uh, I actually have the McDonald's app on my phone. Please don't judge me, but I do. And uh, there was a coupon on the app for a free, or not a free coffee, but 99 cent coffee, any size. I was like, okay, great. So I come up to the drive thru and I ask for a coffee, and the lady asked me what size, and I'm like, "Eh, I'll take a large. And so I order my coffee, I pay, and I come up to the window where I'm gonna pick up said coffee, and I'm just kind of sitting there for a couple minutes waiting. and I'm looking through the drive through window, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but you're kind of are looking through and you're just people watching, you know, who's inside McDonald's at like 7.45 in the morning on a Sunday, and kind of just thinking about each of their life stories and what brought them there. And on the very far side, past the cash register, I see this woman who's making a coffee. And this coffee is in like a massive, super-sized cup, okay? And I've seen the movie, Supersize Me, I'm just thinking to myself, like, man, who would order a coffee that big? Haven't you seen that movie? Don't you know, like, how bad that is for you? And I'm just kind of looking out at the crowd and the people inside the McDonald's, and I'm thinking to myself, who would have ordered this coffee? Just kind of silently judging. And it was at that moment that I turned around, and the woman who had been making the coffee was walking towards me with it outstretched. And with shock and horror, she opened the window and held out that supersized coffee to me. And uh, I had to sit there and think about the fact that I had ordered a coffee that was about 72 ounces, I think. It was like a Slurpee size. And I had been sitting here thinking, who on earth would do that? And it was me. And that kind of reminded me of the story that we are going to get into today in Luke chapter 5. I promise that segue will, will build itself in today at some point. Um, but before we do that, I would love to ask you just to pause again for a moment to center your heart on what we are going to be talking about today. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, teacher, a revolutionary, an incredible human being, but much more than that as well. So if you would, would you please pray with me? God, we give you thanks that you speak to us. God, that you speak to us in different ways. Um, For some of us, it is quietly going on a walk early in the morning. For some of us, that isn't quite fit. God, for some of us, it's through singing song. For some of us, it's through journaling. For some of us, it's meditation. God, for some of us, it's scripture. And so we ask this morning that, God, you would speak to us, that you would um, touch and speak to each of our hearts that we would know you deeper, Jesus, and that we would know ourselves deeper as well. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we were going through Luke chapter 5, um, and it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting story that Russell taught on last week. The story of a man who has leprosy in his encounter with Jesus. Um, so if you have a phone or a Bible that you want to pull out and follow along with us, please feel free. We'll also have it up on the screen here. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12, is where Russell had us last week. And Luke's gospel and the story of Scripture at large is more than just fragmented little stories about, again, a good moral teacher. The Bible is a book about God interacting with the human story. And in this fifth chapter of the story that Luke is telling us, we see God showing up and interacting with people just like you and just like me. And so here's our passage from last week, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, from the beginning of our time in the book of Luke, we've been talking about this idea that God is using unassuming people in unexpected ways in order to bless humanity. God is using unassuming people in unexpected ways in order to bless humanity. And we see this right from the start. The book of Luke opens up with a story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, They're a couple who has not been able to have children for their entire life. And suddenly they give birth to a boy who will become John the Baptizer, an incredible person in the story of Luke. Then we find Mary, a normal everyday woman who is a virgin, who gives birth to Jesus. Even more incredible. There's Simeon and Anna in the temple, Jesus choosing fishermen to come and be his disciples. Jesus is choosing very unassuming people to play a part in this story. And the list goes on and on, leading us up to this story about the man who has leprosy. And last week, Russell pointed out just how unexpected it was for this guy to be a part of the story. In those days that Jesus was living, a person who had leprosy was actually cast outside of the city gates. People who had leprosy were forced to live in a colony together. And if they were going to come inside the city gates, they would have to shout again and again, unclean, unclean. In fact, sometimes in certain cities, lepers were forced to actually tie a a like bell around their ankle so that as they came into the city, people could hear them and run and flee and get as far away as possible as they possibly could. And I want you to just... Imagine for a moment how dehumanizing and isolating it must have been for a person with leprosy. That every time you go walking towards someone, people go running. That you have to constantly shout out, unclean, unclean, about yourself. Even though you had nothing to do, you came upon a disease, you didn't do anything wrong, but now you have to shout out, unclean, again and again and again. And I think that It's kind of hard for me to understand at times what the social construct of this would have been like. But in some ways, I think we can kind of understand and empathize in a way. Even right now, as we're speaking, uh, coronavirus is spreading across different countries and across our our world. And people have a deep-seated fear in their heart about what is happening. It's unknown. We don't quite know how people are coming in contact with it. A few years back when Ebola was spreading... Um, I had visited a country that was a few hundred miles away from a country where Ebola had had an outbreak. And when I was coming back to the United States, uh, TSA pulled me to the side because they'd seen where I was flying from, questioned me, talked to me for over an hour. I ended up missing my flight because I'd been to a country that was a few hundred miles away from a place where Ebola had taken place. We still do understand what it's like to be afraid of a disease that can be contagious. And that is what people felt about people who had leprosy. So now imagine this man who has leprosy comes running through the crowd towards Jesus. He's not shouting unclean. Think about it. Put yourself in the shoes of the people. If someone with one of those diseases was coming into our gathering, we would probably, if we're being honest, be a little scared that we might come in contact with what they have. But he breaks these societal standards, believing that Jesus can heal him. And he does. But as Russell pointed out, what's even more incredible than the fact that Jesus just heals him is that he touches the man. If Jesus can heal with just his words, the snap of a finger, he certainly did not have to reach out and touch the man. But it is probable that this person with leprosy had not received another human touch for a very, very long time. And so in front of this man, in front of The leper is in front of the entire community of people in this city. Jesus not only heals him, but he restores this man's humanity in front of everyone. Saying this person is a, a human being just like you and just like me. It's a beautiful story. But there's this curious line at the end. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And I've always found this part really curious, like why does Jesus immediately upon this incredible moment in his life make him go and do that? And as we discussed last week, this gave the man a chance for um, him to go as the law had told him to the temple to show the religious leaders that he had been healed. But also, no doubt, Jesus knew that this would certainly pique the interest of the powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem. And that is where our story picks up today. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Now one day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem. So, needless to say, if part of Jesus' plan in sending the man to the temple was to get the attention of the religious leaders, he has done it. He has succeeded, because those teachers have now come to Jesus. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where Jesus had been dedicated as a baby in Luke chapter 2, And where his parents had forgotten him when he was 12 years old, only to find him hanging out with, learning from, and discussing the scriptures with these very leaders. But now instead of Jesus going to them, they have come to Jesus. And so have many others. And it continues. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. It's a pretty epic story. And uh, I got to be honest with you, I have actually been a part of teaching this story probably well over a hundred times, all of which were in a country called Ghana in West Africa. Um, My little brother uh, was adopted from Ghana, and I've probably spent collectively about a year of my life there. Most summers over the last 10 years I've gone and spent time with my Ghanaian friends. They um, are a part of an organization that helps start new churches, just like one that we are connected with here at Church of the City, but halfway around the world. And one of the things that we'll do when we're together is we'll go from village to village, and we'll play soccer, and uh, we will do a uh, VBS kind of thing. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, grew up with VBS. Maybe you feel you were privileged to do so, or you were very unfortunate to do so. Uh, But VBS often includes not only telling a story about the Scriptures, but acting out a story about the Scriptures. Yes. And uh, that is what we do. Uh, And this is their favorite story to tell. So very often, we'll gather about 100 kids into a little uh, classroom uh, that's built of mud with a thatch roof, packed in, very tight. And my friend, Wompini, he will begin to tell this story to the kids in their native language, Doug Bonnie. And um, a lot of the times, I will actually play the part of the paralyzed man. And the kids love this because what happens next is one penny calls a couple of them out of the crowd and uh, I'm lying there and he makes them pick me up and the kids are just roaring with laughter at this point and he has them mimic lowering me through the roof down in front of Jesus, which is another kid that he's chosen to play this part. And once the laughter has finally died down because they see their friends carrying this funny looking American When Penny shares with them what Jesus did next and what it says about who Jesus was and who we are. Um, I was actually talking this week with my friend Brian about um, some kind of experiential thing we could do here. Maybe we could uh, act this out, but I don't want to damage the roof of Lucky Lab. So you will not be uh, fortunate enough to see me act this out today. But you're always welcome to come to Ghana with me if you want to see that happen. So in verse 20, it says that Jesus saw their faith. And he said to them, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know That the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. It's an incredible story. And honestly, I think that it beckons us to consider each person's perspective and what it says about them and what it says about Jesus. So first, the paralyzed man and his friends. Over the past few weeks, I have been watching this show called Messiah on Netflix. Don't know if any of you have seen this. Uh, It's a really intriguing show. Um, It is based in modern day 2020 about this guy who shows up calling himself Al-Masih, which means Messiah or something close to that in Arabic. And he begins performing miracles. He actually walks on water at one point, doing a lot of the things that Jesus does. And people are wondering whether he really is Jesus and he has returned, or if he's a false prophet, or if he's a revolutionary, or if he's just a dude who's off his rocker. And there's Jewish people and Muslim people and Christians who are all trying to figure out what is going on with this guy. And so at one point, Almasi travels from the Middle East to the U.S., and there's this particular episode that really struck me. Uh, there is a mom who travels aco- across the country from Texas to Washington, D.C., where Alma C is, with her 10-year-old daughter who has cancer. Her daughter has lost all of her hair, having gone through chemo, and nothing seems to be working, and she travels over 1,000 miles, longing for and hoping that this person, Al-Masih, can heal her daughter. And eventually she actually sneaks into the hotel where he is staying. They sneak past the secret service and knock on the door, all in hopes that this proclaimed savior can heal her. And you can just palpably feel the desperation in her actions, right? No doctor has been able to heal her. No medication, no treatment has worked. And she's desperate, And as I watched, I could not help but think of this story in Luke chapter 5. We don't know the nature of the relationship or the friendship between the man who is paralyzed and this group of people that are with him. But you can feel that desperation. That they would climb up onto a roof of a stranger's home. They would damage their property, which in those days, if you damage someone's property like that, it is not going to go well for you. They deal with that pretty severely. They don't care. They are desperate. Have you ever felt that kind of desperation before? A desperation for someone that you love to find healing. Maybe it is physical healing. Maybe it's healing from something like cancer or an inability to walk. And you spent countless nights crying out to God, asking and pleading that he would heal them. Maybe it's healing in someone's mental health that you love as they're going through a heavy season of depression or anxiety asking and hoping that they would find hope again. Or maybe you're hungry for them to find spiritual healing from the aches or the wounds that another church or religious organization has caused to somebody that you love. Have you ever felt that kind of desperation before for someone else, for someone you love, or maybe even for yourself? What about the man himself who is paralyzed? What kind of desperation does he feel? The text doesn't tell us his perspective from the very beginning. Is he coming up with this plan? Like, they show up. It's too crowded. He's like, you know what, guys? We could sneak up on the roof. You could carry me, cut a hole, drop me in. Beautiful idea. Is he coming up with this idea? We don't know. Maybe he's having this done to him against his will. Uh, Maybe somebody brought you here today and you didn't really want to come, but you're kind of coming with (laughs) him. Maybe you can relate a little bit. But regardless, we find in verse 20, what Jesus says to him and to the whole group. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Their faith. Collectively, this group stepped out in faith, believing in Jesus. It's not only the friends, but the man himself. And I think that this word faith can be tricky. It's a, a junk drawer word. When we say faith, We all probably think of a number of different things. But what I actually find really incredible about what Jesus says here is that he calls the man friend. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And I think that friendship is one of the most beautiful parts of this whole storyline. And when I'm with my friends in Ghana and they're telling this story, they often focus on this aspect of Jesus calling the man friend. Most of their neighbors um, are Muslim and they uh, devoutly believe in God. They pray five times a day, but their view of their relationship with God is not one in which God would call you friend. And so to them and to these kids, when they hear that Jesus calls us a friend, it's gospel. It's good news that God would call us friend. And so today, I'm reminded that God is not aloof and far away. He is here. As he calls this man a friend, he also calls you friend. And he calls me friend. But why does Jesus, after calling him friend, say your sins are forgiven? Why lead with that? In the era and culture in which Jesus lived, many people believed that someone who had leprosy or someone who was paralyzed had caused or done some kind of uh, egregious sin in their life. Maybe they'd murdered someone or stolen and the gods or God was punishing them because of what they had done by giving them some kind of affliction, some kind of suffering. And while Jesus does not lean into that claim, he does specifically tell him your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, for one, it riles up the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but we'll get to that in just a second. I think that Jesus wants this man to know that he cares most deeply for what is happening in his soul. That Jesus cares most deeply for your soul. Jesus never promises that all who believe in him would be physically healed or cured of diseases. And if we can just be really honest for a second and pause and think about that, that sucks. Really. Someone who I love very dearly has had Um, some physical physical suffering for a long time. And I have prayed and asked God for years that he would heal my friend. And it hasn't happened. And that sucks. If we can just be brutally honest for a moment, part of being human is being honest. It sucks that when we cry out, that our friends, the people that we love, don't always find the healing that we're asking for. Jesus never promised that all who believed in him would find healing. Physical healing. But even this man who was healed, who was able to walk, would eventually one day grow old and die. Even though this physical healing happened to him, it, it didn't last forever. He is not still living today. Physical healing lasts only for a moment. And Jesus wants him to know that more than just his physical well being, Jesus cares deeply about what's happening in his soul. Jesus cares for him all the way through. And look at how the man responds to everything that has happened in verse 25. Immediately, he stood up in front of them. He took what he had been lying on and he went home praising God. Now, this may not seem like that odd of a response to you if something like this were to happen, but very few passages in scripture do we find that a person is healed by Jesus. And the text tells us that they ran away praising God. A lot of times they run away to tell their friends or they go to the religious leaders to say, what the heck just happened to me? It's very rare that we actually find someone running away, praising God. But this man, I believe, deep down in his soul knew that what had happened, his healing, was soul deep. But that is not how everyone felt about the situation. The Pharisees were not quite as pleased Uh, Much like myself in the McDonald's drive-thru, sitting there quietly judging and uh, kind of watching everyone and thinking what is okay, what is not, what's acceptable, and what isn't, the Pharisees get a real Jesus juke here. But I think we misunderstand what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees uh, in this passage, and also what he's saying to the Pharisees much of the time throughout Scripture. Um, I actually want to turn quickly to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to be reading this out of the CEV. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are experts in the law of Moses. So obey everything that they teach you, but do not do as they do. After all, they say one thing and they do something else. They pile heavy burdens on people's shoulders and they won't lift a finger to help it's quite a strong word for these, this group of people. And Jesus says that though they know the law, they are hypocrites. And he's not just saying that the law is stupid or being a jerk to these powerful people in his community because he's an angsty guy with a chip on his shoulder. Their error, according to Jesus, is that they say one thing and do something else. They pile heavy burdens on people's shoulders and they do nothing to help. And this is what Jesus routinely calls them out for throughout the story of Luke and all of the gospels, sitting on the sidelines, judging everyone and considering themselves more holy. They teach these rules and Jesus says, what they teach you is good, but the way that they live, they're hypocrites. And while it's easy for us to point at these Pharisees, these teachers of the law as everything that's wrong with religion, corrupt leadership, hypocrisy, being judgmental, all of which is valid. I personally have been struck this week at how quickly I can become like a Pharisee and not just in the McDonald's drive-thru. When I disagree with someone about politics, if I'm being really honest, I'm quick to see myself as more moral, more rational, maybe even more intelligent than the person that I'm talking to because we disagree. I say, and we say that this is a place we can all come together, people who think from different perspectives, but I can be so quick to think, that I'm just a better person, and that's why I believe what I believe. When I hear someone speak at an event or a conference or even a church gathering like this, I'm often quick to just start filtering through the person's words, thinking about what I agree with and what I don't agree with, what they're saying is inaccurate and what they should have said differently, instead of actually listening to what the person is saying. It's not just at big public gatherings, it's often across a cup of coffee. I'm filtering through this person's words instead of just listening to them. And frankly, Jesus has a strong rebuke for me in that. You see, right now it's the Pharisees, but quite soon it will be the disciples. Jesus calls this ragtag group of people, fishermen, tax collectors, the most unassuming people you could imagine to be a part of this story, to bless humanity in unexpected ways. But quickly, way quicker than I would like to think, these disciples become much like the Pharisees themselves thinking that they're better than the people around them, telling people who can come in and who can't. And even in the small areas of power that we might hold in our workplace or our school, in our apartment, in our community, we can be just as quick as the Pharisees to use that power to put ourselves up and hold ourselves above others. And it's here that we find that the values of Jesus's kingdom lie in stark contrast to the kingdom of our own. So, we've talked a bit about what the perspective is of the paralyzed man and his friends and the Pharisees and what this says about us too. But what does this story tell us about Jesus? Jesus himself. Let's take a look again at verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man. This is the first time that Jesus uses this term in the book of Luke, or the earliest point in any of the Gospels that Jesus uses it. And it's the title that he will use to actually describe himself more than any other title in the story. And this idea of the Son of Man is a prophetic picture from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament of the Messiah who was to come as a servant. Jesus is using this term to describe himself here for the first time. Many people in Jesus's day, perhaps many of the people who were actually gathered in this room, they would have been hoping for a Messiah who was more like David, a warrior, a king who would come in, who would overthrow Rome and restore power and prosperity to them. But Jesus says, I'm coming as a son of man, as a servant. And this week I was listening to an audiobook called How God Became King by N.T. Wright. He is a writer and a theologian from England. And quick tangent to the side, if you're ever reading a book by someone who is um, British and you have an audiobook, you should definitely listen to it. I feel like my IQ rose just a couple points by listening to this guy read this book. Uh, but in all seriousness, I was struck by something he said about Jesus and the story that Luke is telling us and all the authors are telling us in the Gospels. He writes about how many of the prophets in the Old Testament performed miracles and even healings. This was commonplace in the days of Jesus and the days leading up to the time of Jesus, that people, prophets, would perform miracles and healings. Healing someone does not make you the savior of the world. If you've watched the show Messiah on Netflix, that's one of the things that they talk about often. Healing someone, doing a miracle, does not mean that you are the self-proclaimed savior of the world, especially to the Jewish audience that would have been there and reading Luke's gospel early on. But to me, if I'm being blunt, at first glance, when I read this story, the most amazing thing is that Jesus actually healed a paralyzed person. This isn't something that I see every day. When I read this story, it strikes me as wild and even frankly, hard to believe if I'm allowed to say that, that Jesus actually just healed this person with his words. But what is even more incredible than Jesus being a teacher, a prophet, a leader, or even a healer is that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that they and we have been waiting for. And in this moment, the crowd in the outskirts of Israel, in a place and a people who are very unlikely to ever be included in this story, they leave this moment praising God amazed by what they've seen, the kingdom of Jesus, the gospel intersecting with the place that they find themselves in. They're amazed and they praise God. While the Pharisees, the people of power in the capital city are quick to judge others, are humbled and put in their place. Friends, this is the upside down kingdom of Jesus. It's a kingdom where you and I are called to lay down our power and our privilege service. It's a kingdom where we ourselves and all our neighbors can learn to call God friend and be called a friend of God in return. It is a kingdom where healing runs soul deep and Jesus is inviting us in. So God, we thank you. We thank you that your kingdom is one that is far greater than our own that your wisdom and your healing is greater than anything we could ever come up with ourselves. God, we thank you that when we are lonely and when we feel isolated, when we feel unwanted, when we feel broken, that you call us a friend. You call us a friend. God, we thank you that because of you, we can find forgiveness We can find hope. We can find healing. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.